I'm Kasim, the founder of Start Well, and for this, the 24th episode of our podcast, we're in studio with Matt Cohen, one of the co-founders of Ripple Ventures. So why Ripple Ventures? Yeah, so I um, I started Ripple Ventures really just on my own uh, after I made my first angel investment in 2012 in a company called Turnstile, okay. um, which I helped start uh, with a f- couple friends, um, which was really just my first experience in the early stage tech startup scene. And what I saw through that experience was that a small amount of capital, large for me, but a small amount of capital in the grand scheme of things, um, had such profound impacts on people's lives. The people that ended up working there, the people that ended up moving to San Francisco after the company got acquired by Yelp and watching the ripples of that first investment spread throughout so many people's lives and the impact it had was quite profound on me. And I just had this thing about the ripple effect, the ripple effect always coming back in my mind. And so I decided that if I was ever going to start a fund, I wanted to have it called Ripple. And I will say, I did just acquire rippleventures.com, the domain name. And for some reason that feels really uh who had that who was was it a squatter it fell you like buy from an auction yeah i bought it through an auction actually i didn't even know it was for sale one of our portfolio companies sent me a message like hey ripple.com or rippleventures.com is available you should buy it i'm like oh this is going to cost me like hundreds of thousands of dollars and it was definitely not it was quite cheap Good. and we just put a bid in and we bought it so now we own .com and .ca and it feels like it's come full circle fantastic yeah. wow we're done the podcast that's over see you <laughs> so uh <laughs> No, I like that idea of kind of uh, thinking larger than just the capital injection being the focus and ROI, you know, as a fund operator, I think, um, or I guess let's let's jump into that. I, I won't preload this. I'll just say, you know, life as an operator of a fund, mm-hmm. a fund that, yes, is, has ventures in it, you know, is a quote unquote VC fund, but is yeah. very personal from what I understand. For sure. Tell us a little bit how, about the personality of your fund mm-hmm. um, and how it extends into the relationships that you forge with the investee companies. Sure. So um, when I started the fund in early 2018, um, I had the idea that I didn't want to just invest in companies like an angel. I wanted to work alongside my companies because I thought that that was the best way for me to learn how to become a better investor and operator, but also give my companies the best chances of success. Mm-hmm. And so in order to execute on that, I actually partnered up with my partner now, who is Michael Garb, who is also uh, a former operator himself, had run his own uh, tech business for almost 20 years. He had about 100 employees, 50 million in sales, exited it to a U.S. public company. So he had been through the operator experience as well. And I felt that at the early stage VC world, there wasn't many funds who were investing at the kind of early pre-seed seed stage that were really rolling up their hands or rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. Right. And I really enjoyed my experience with Turnstile and some of my other investments where I felt that no matter how much I invested, I was still putting all the time I could into that company to help them succeed. And so I felt that if I could match significant capital at the early stage with that operator approach, yeah. it could be a recipe for success. And so that's where we came at it from. Okay. And and that's why we ended up creating an incubator space to work with them every day instead of just having those monthly check-ins or quarterly board calls or whatever thing like that. Yeah, because a year ago, I think when we talked, you had just opened the space. Yeah, we opened, uh, the fund officially launched in like the summer of 2018. And we took over uh, an incubator space or an office space in downtown Toronto at Spadina and Adelaide yep. uh, and created an incubator space for our own companies to work outside of alongside us. And it's called The Tank. The tank. The tank, yeah. The holding tank. The the think tank. Okay. <laughs> the shark tank, whatever you want to call it. Uh, 
tell us a little bit about the space. We'll try and get some photos. I'm going to come visit you there and then we'll put some photos to accompany this post. But, um, yeah, tell us about the space and, uh, it's it's definitely a lot more space than we ever needed. Okay. How Um, big is it? It's about 5,000 square feet. Okay. Uh, We've got about 50 desks. Yeah. Um, we have, you know, separate boardrooms and we've created call pods. We've got a kitchen space and common areas and stuff. And uh, it was actually Expedia Canada's old offices oh, before. Wow. So we okay. have all the murals and stuff from like their travel uh, posters on the wall still. Um, and we basically took on way larger space than we ever needed. Yeah. And we said, if our companies can come in here as we invest in them and watch them grow from five to 10 to 15, then we feel like we've given them the best chances of success right. so that they can literally come and ask us for help all the time. So we created the space. We opened it in October of 2018. We had two companies move in right away, which yep. were uh, Tread Technologies and Pit Stop. Right. So Tread um, moved from Startwell to yeah, exactly. there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, and then we had VoiceFlow come in when they were called Storyflow first. And then they came in. And so we've had companies actually come and grow. Mm-hmm. Like Tread got up to almost 20 employees at oh, the wow. time. They started with us. They were only at eight. Yeah. Uh, and then they moved out across the street. And then VoiceFlow, again, went from about five or six to about 12, 13. Now they're almost at 20, I guess. And they are also uh, going, you know, growing quite quickly. So it's a great way for us to give our companies a level up. Of course. Without having to worry about, as you know, as a landlord, you know, the headache of finding a space, managing it, setting up the infrastructure, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's a great way. And they also feed off each other. Because what you're saying is is absolutely at the core of obviously what we do at Startwell, right? It's not just about the real estate or operating the real estate, but it's about adding value through programming and the connectivity uh, for early stage ventures yeah. that's so integral in accelerating their success trajectory. For sure. And it's also, it has a profound impact, I feel, on the startup's um uh, feelings towards building culture and community at their own space when they get it eventually. So right, we had our right. our second hanu- uh, annual holiday party last night, and we had some of our previous portfolio companies come back to the office where we hosted it, and they were like emotional to come back there because they don't spend much time there anymore after they've moved out, and they're like, "This is where we got started. Yeah. This is like start well, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. where they got started yeah. for them as a company, and they have such profound memories from that that they wanted to be." there for a longer period but they just outgrew it which is great yeah and that's what we want but i feel that it's an important part of their journey to know they're not on their own right when they're trying to run a business yeah with every other thing going around you it's an interesting thing because it's something that obviously we deal with as well right where we're kind of um incubating companies we've changed our platform in the last year specifically to offer a lot more uh, elasticity to our um I guess I would call it our, our space platform in the sense that, and, and we'll walk after this, we'll walk over to the sure. new building that we've uh, just opened around the, in the neighborhood. But the idea for us now is why should all the goodness stop when you hit a certain headcount? Mm-hmm. And the goodness for us is everything that not gets a company to a certain stage, because of course our business model isn't the same as yours in mm-hmm. that way. Um, you know, we actually are trying to support the life time of an early stage company to the point where uh, hopefully their corporate culture isn't necessarily something that needs to exclude itself from community interactivity and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, I think uh, for us anyway, we're we're trying to look at it like, and I think now, I mean, there is a hard stop. I can't support a company of 500 (laughs) staff, you know, but the the max that we've done in the last year is 150 people Mm -hmm. uh, that are resident here on campus from one company. 
that's why we're balancing it with you know mm-hmm. 300 other people in different companies so um it's really interesting to see people when the support network isn't limited you know real estate and kind of network pluggability support network whatever i could rephrase that better <laughs> if i was more caffeinated but um what we offer if it extends beyond 30 50 people uh something really interesting happens where people stop thinking of that uh endpoint in an experience while they're focusing on their company which is really interesting mm-hmm. i find sure if companies come in to start well and they say okay well this is cool for six months and then you know we'll be too big and we'll get our own space right. What I find is they, they really have a little bit of anxiety about the exit from our campus. For sure. Companies, once they um, they kind of graduate, even though we don't have demo day and all that stuff, they still know that they can kind of come back to us. So we have a couple companies now doing their Series A's that are you know a big milestone in their company's existence, but they still come back to us uh, as if we were their pre-seed or seed investors for right. a lot of stuff they need help with. You right. know, we're still on the boards. We're still observers. But we've kind of seen them graduate. And so to know that there is a home base that they can come back to for anything. Like I go for coffees and walks with all of our CEOs very often, yeah. um, even though we're not involved in their day-to-day business anymore because they're not in the space physically. Yeah. Um, that's something that we think is because of the tank. I think it's really interesting because it's. I agree with this kind of line of thinking, which is, um, you know, some people will, will poo-poo this line of thinking, saying it's it's hand-holding, and, you know, institutional investors may say, well, you know, if they're investable propositions that can stand on their own two feet and scale infinitely, they should be able to do that without interference of investors. But I, I think that's stupid, and it kind of, like, plays into the pump and dump, you know, pyramid scheme VC side yeah. of things. Um, I, I really enjoy working with companies as an investor or, you know, otherwise. Yeah. Just as someone who is interested in, uh, you know, a company's evolution, uh, I think it's fascinating to to be able to lend a hand when you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that every founder and every founding team, even every, to be honest, I would say that leadership at most public companies are even in more need of help and coaching, <laughs> you know, yeah, if that's sure. the end goal. Um, which I think is increasingly... It's not for every CEO. Uh, yeah. And we, we find that when we, we when we are meeting with potential portfolio companies, we tell them, look, we're not just going to be a, a capital investor in your business. We're going to be in your business. Right. And and some founders really like that and they're open to it and some don't. And, you know, there's obviously arguments, but, you know, as kind of Ray Dalio talks about radical transparency, the person at the bottom of the totem pole should be able to criticize someone at the very top. Yeah. And so we believe in that a founder, especially a lot of our founders who are first time founders, they don't know what they don't know. And, you know, I've had some experience. I've noticed some pattern recognition. My partner, Michael, has also been around the block a lot. He's done a several M&A deals. He's done his own exits. He's done a lot of corporate development work. You know, he understands some things that our CEOs just never have seen or experienced. And so knowing you have a partner who's on the same side of the table as you, not across from you right. in your day-to-day, you know, uh, building is important. I think it gives our founders a lot. If you look on our website, the quotes that our founders have, have said about working with us and having us a part of them, yeah, we didn't force them to write those things. We just said, hey, do you mind I, writing a quote? I haven't looked at your website in a year. This is great. <laughs> it's, a, it's the first VC fund with testimony. It's now, so. Yeah, there you go. Sure you check that that's out. why I haven't looked yeah, at it. Yeah, that's why. But it's amazing to have testimonials from your investees. Yeah. On, I think uh, it's, on your... uh, well, I mean, some people may disagree with this comment, but I do believe that our entrepreneurs are our clients. 
Yeah. You know, and, and we have investors, you know, our investors and our fund are obviously our clients and my partner, Michael and I are a third of the capital invested in our first fund. So we're our own clients. Right. But that's in the long term, right? Our goal is to return capital to investors and provide a nice, a healthy return for them. But in the day to day, in the short term, our clients are our entrepreneurs because mm -hmm. if they're successful, then we're successful and everyone is. This. Yep. So we really do believe in helping them get through all of their challenges whenever they need our help. And obviously you can step on people's toes doing that, getting too involved, but right, that's right. a fine line that you have to figure out. And if you start to push, then you just have to kind of reel it in and have real open conversations. So we do believe in that. No, I think it's cool. I mean, I was just actually talking to someone earlier today um, from a global uh, kind of an accelerator uh, that's coming to Toronto. And we we're talking about different angles on this whole story of early stage support and mm -hmm. uh, especially on company formation, right? Uh, so whatever the impetus for a company coming together is and whoever has been put in the same room with the people that are going to form the team, um, I think there's always these kind of common questions that come up of like, I guess, is the team enough? What is the ecosystem around a company? And if you're especially if you're pre-revenue and you don't have relationships with customers, which normally would define a lot of the kind of, you know, can we do this and how do we do this stuff? Mm. Um you need a support network. Yeah. And what's interesting is we were talking about it and they were asking me about kind of what does the VC landscape in, in, you know, Toronto specifically look like in Canada look like, because when they surveyed all of the other spaces before coming to us for a potential home, um, one thing that kept coming up was the intermingling of whether it's, you know, institutional funding or institutional like government backed programming, mm -hmm. um, that seems to kind of offer a very sanitized, formulaic, simple, I could read it in a book uh, support, which can skew oftentimes, um, you know, founder perceptions or not act as a true uh, sounding board. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is rah, 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 you know, and I think that this is kind of a, a cultural problem um, where a lot of early stage founders kind of get hyped up into what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to have a support network that takes that gives them honest feedback from, you know, the perspective of having entrepreneurial experience. Yeah. So I think, you know, you have to recognize that there's going to be a lot of bad days and some really good or great days. Right. But there's going to be times when shit hits the fan more often than you think. Yeah. And you need a support system there to back you. And that's what we think about. We, we don't want to just be all roses and think that every single day of a startup's life is, is great. Yeah. We know that there's going to be a lot of shitty days. And so we want to be there to help them feel like they have a platform to lean on. They have a network too. There's advisors. We have entrepreneurs and residents who come in and physically work in our incubator with our companies. We put a, a fractional CFO into every business oh, that's so cool. that we help them take the burden off of finance, budgeting, forecasting, payroll. We have a, a Ripple healthcare plan where our companies don't have to worry about getting insurance. Right. They can come in, and join our pool plan and we can all do it together and know that like we got you covered. So that's nothing you have to worry about. And then we have you know help in the recruiting side, PR partnerships. We've got a personal uh, professional development coach. So uh, I kind of use the comparison to the show Billions, mm -hmm. where uh, Wendy Rhodes is the you know uh, performance coach for all the people on, on the team there. Yeah. We have someone that does that for us right. uh, with our CEOs because 
you know, mental health is a really big thing. Burnout is real. Mm-hmm. We our first time founders have not experienced a lot of things that they uh, are going through and we want them to know that they're not on their own. And sometimes they don't feel comfortable talking with us right. about what they're going through because we're investors sure. and we're on the board and that could be a bit of a conflict. And so we say, no problem. There's there's people on our team that can help you. Um, you should definitely go talk. Her name's Alicia Gray and she's fantastic. Yep. And she works with them uh, pretty pretty often. Yeah, absolutely. So Alicia is also here oh, yeah. uh, floating around our space a lot and uh, and we've paired her with a few people as well. And um, and she is great. And it's funny because I've also joked with her about this whole Wendy Rhodes thing. Yeah. Yeah, I told um, you just change your name to Wendy. It'd be easier. Easier, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the... Um, uh, the idea of kind of building a support network around of around your investees is so fascinating, and uh, I'm intrigued to know uh, about the typical deal structure that you sure. have and the time. Um, I guess the timeline from you know negotiating and investing in a company and then holding them. Uh, you know, or not? Sorry, I keep saying it's a holding tank, mm-hmm. but it's it's not it, keeping. You know. Engaging them yeah, in the sure, sure. Uh, think tank. Yeah, they're definitely not changing their desk. So let's be clear about that. Um, so so we're early stage fund. So we do pre-seed and seed is okay. typically where we invest. We'll invest half a million to a million dollars per check size. Uh, and we typically uh, focus on B2B and enterprise SaaS investments. So we're uh, not investing in consumer. We're not investing in uh, blockchain, cannabis, uh life sciences, we'll do mostly uh, B2B and enterprise SaaS, and we do focus on the Northeast. So our core cities uh, are Toronto, Boston, New York, with extensions to Waterloo, Montreal, Ottawa as well. Um, And the reason for that is because of our operator first approach, we wanna be very close to our companies and have that, you know, close proximity to them. So an hour flight is probably the farthest we'll go before we uh, say no to a company. So if you're within that realm and that, you know, focus for us, then that works. Now, um, we do have a pretty rigorous due diligence process at the stages that we invest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe that for us, it works. For some founders and entrepreneurs, it doesn't work. Uh, But the reason why we like it is because we feel that by putting a company through some type of process like ours, we think if they can make it through that, then they're definitely in a position to have uh, better chances of making it through, let's say, their seed or series A afterwards. So what's the process? Into- so um, most times we get inbound deal flow like others. And if we have a thematic approach, we'll do a lot of outbound searching. So we just closed a deal recently in New York, which was one of our first outbound source deals hmm. uh, in a company called Aptio uh, based in New York City. And so what we do is we'll really try to get to know the founders. So our, my team of associates, uh, Dom and Josh and our analyst, Ryan, will typically have the first or second call with the founders to get to a better understanding of what it is they're building, why is it important, and how it's going to actually become a you know potential investment for us, and tell them about our model as well to see if there's a match. And then if that makes it past that filter, our uh, team will put together a quick write-up, three pages, on what the company is about, what they're doing, what the problem they're solving in the team. So we focus on product, market, and team. Sure. And most of it is really about market and team. Are these all pre-revenue or no, some No, no. Some companies will have like proof of concepts, okay. uh, pilots and stuff like that. You know, most of our companies ever have anywhere from 100 to about 500 in ARR. Okay. Usually around that realm. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So they're, they're not like just the ideation stage. These yeah. are like companies that have enterprise customers trialing it but they're still not paying their bills definitely not paying their bills (laughs) um so they need that's why they're coming to us they need capital right yeah and partners and so once we get that uh prepared from our team we'll invite them in for a partner meeting so we typically host partner meetings with the team on thursdays and we'll try to stack them back to back just so we can be efficient with our time yeah um and then once they've had the team meeting with our partners 
so Michael and I and the rest of the team, then we'll decide if we want to move forward with full due diligence or not. And if we're not interested, we tell them very quickly we're not interested. We do not like to waste entrepreneurs' time and drag things through. Mm -hmm. If it's a focus for us and we're interested, we'll move them to the next stage. And at that point, um, what we do is we put together an LOI, mm -hmm. so a letter of intent to say, this is our process. These are the stages and the things we need at each step. Mm -hmm. It's usually like 15 days, we need this. If another 15 days, we need this and so on. And then what they do is they start to give us those data points. But we are also very clear at what kind of investment we typically make, mm -hmm. the round size, and the approximate dilution to be expecting. Mm -hmm. So it gives them a sense of the valuation. If mm -hmm. that's completely out of line with what they were hoping for, we want to be clear about that. Because we don't want to be in this sort of asking, 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 and at the end say, oh, by the way, we think your valuation is half of what you wanted it to be. Right, right. Um, so we're very clear about that. But if we do go into a company and to do diligence, we go very deep, very quickly. Okay. And we only really focus on that company. Yeah. Um, and then by the time we issue a term sheet, it could be about two to three weeks, maybe four. But it's just like financial analysis or what else is it? Oh, in terms, well, I mean, you're not looking for a five-year forecast uh, yeah. for a company. Really what we care about is really get to know the team, go very deep on the, the market, understand their product. And then if that all makes sense, then we'll move forward with term sheet discussion and issue a term sheet. And do you have potential like... So operating budget would be the financial part. Like, yeah, How do you exactly, want to take exactly. the money and spend it? Because these are typically how old, uh, like how young of a company? Like, uh, they could be anywhere from a year to maybe two or three years in okay, terms of like okay. founding. Right. But they don't really hit their stride to when they want to talk to us until maybe um, you know six months to 12 months before. So what happens is uh, we'll go through that operating budget, what they want to spend money on and stuff and say, okay, we have a term sheet. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to lead the round. We typically mm -hmm. lead all the rounds we do. Okay. So the diligence is on you. You yeah. pay for it all. Yeah. We do all of it. Yeah. And then what we do is we actually put together a syndicate of investors that want to join the round with the due diligence that we create. Okay. So we'll do our overall di due diligence with our all of our checklist. We'll do um, technical due diligence. So we actually hire a third-party consulting firm okay. that we work with that goes in. They're a team of about five engineers, and they'll rip apart their tech stack. They'll see their data schema, their architecture. You know, If it's machine learning, we'll talk about how they uh, manage those models. We talk about how they want to scale from an enterprise perspective. Uh, how big can this tech stack get? Or they have a lot of tech debt that they sure. need to rebuild. Right. Things like that. Um, and then, then we'll uh, go through legal due diligence. You know, you know, all the other indemnities and stuff that we want to make sure we're we're covering off. Yeah. But in the time from term sheet issuance to closing, yeah, which could be anywhere from another four to maybe six weeks, depending on how fast the company's uh, data room is is prepared and all their documents are in order. You know, if they've issued twenty five safes. Wrangling up all those safe investors is sometimes pretty hard. Yeah. So we want to make sure that process goes as fast as we can. Uh, and then we'll put a list of uh, investors that they want to work with or mm -hmm. have them join the round with us or some of the investors we've worked with that we want to have join the round. And we'll reach out to them on the company's behalf and say, look, we're leading a round. Here's our uh, due diligence. If you're interested, we can set up a call between you and the founders and go from there. So we try to stick handle that process for the founders to take a lot of the burden off them. Sure. Yeah, no, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of work in the back end. I mean, there's only so much information that people can give you. Yeah. I uh, mean, at that we, early do, stage. we do a lot. We do a lot of social references. We do a lot of background checks. I mean, some people say it's over. Oh, on the people. Yeah. On the teams. On the teams. Yeah. That's we great. We do a lot of that. Yeah. Interesting. What, um, are there any funny anecdotes that you can anonymize identities and um, describe? 
it is kind of crazy sometimes when you do background checks. I mean, Canadian background checks and U.S. background checks are different. Yeah. So you get a lot more information in the U.S. versus Canadians. And oh. we sh- first of all, they all know this, right? Yeah. Like we tell, they have to agree to it. And then we share the background checks with them also. Okay. So they know. Um, there's just things you get to see. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, this person owns a house or I didn't know this person was married. It says their status, right? Just things like that. Okay. Oh, interesting they didn't mention that to us. Yeah. Um, or you can see some of their employment history that wasn't maybe on LinkedIn, things like that. You know, so you try to you try to make sure that the stories all align. Right. It's just part of right. making sure everything that they said aligns with the data points that you can collect. Yeah. It's really what it is. Try to avoid the blind spots. Yeah. And and so we'd like to speak to previous employers, see what they were like as a team member. And we're evolving this all the time, right? Sure. From our first deal to our most recent deal, I can't tell you how much change we've had in our due diligence process. Um, and what we find is because we do so much it really speeds up the round closing with the syndicate investors. Of course, yeah. So if we bring another VC fund in, let's say from the States, they don't know the company, they've never met the person, they're basically trusting us yeah. that our due diligence, when they see how much due diligence we've done, they're like, oh, wow, Like there's not really much else I need to ask because they have it here. Even the technical due diligence is a full report on the tech stack. Let me just speak to the founder or meet them. Yeah. And that's pretty much all they need to do. So if you're putting in 500K to a million bucks, yeah. Uh, typically, what are the round sizes? Yeah, so we'll typically round size would range from a million to three million. Okay. Um, and we would typically be targeting around ten to fifteen percent ownership, depending on the valuation. Um, and the goal would really be to get them to a Series A uh, within twelve months or so. Um, so we're trying to really grow these companies quickly. So you're seeing, um, and, and that's the idea is like more more money keeps scaling. Like, um, are there any opportunities where you're like? This could totally be so massively profitable as a business that we'll invest in it to sit with our investment for five years because they can pay us out in profit. Or is that a moonshot for this early stage of venture? It's a great question. I mean, we're definitely not uh, of the size or the uh, mindset to be like, we need to only invest in $10 billion outcomes. Yeah, That's not sort of how our model works just because we're investing so early and so risky. Right. But I'd say that... um, we have some companies now that are potential profitable companies in the next 12 months or so. Um, and they could become a kind of lifestyle business and maybe a private equity firm would come in down the road. But we have these conversations often with our founders to make sure they are aligned. Yeah. So we say, do you want to build a profitable lifestyle business? If that's the case, just let us know so we can plan accordingly. So we can maybe get some venture debt sure. or we can get some other forms of capital into the business. Um, or we can bring in some strategics mm-hmm. to really scale this thing where the venture fund would maybe bring their own network to scale. Now we don't look at that. We look at the strategic side. So one deal that we recently did that we is public now is uh, Amazon Alexa came in as a strategic investor into one of our early pre-seed companies, which was VoiceFlow. Mm. And so, you know, the company didn't really need money. They just closed a great seed round with True Ventures. But there was an opportunity to bring a strategic investor into the mix to really help the, the platform scale. And so we are always open to all options. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, we are a, a venture fund and our job is to return capital to our investors. Right. So we have to plan accordingly. So to answer your question, it's really just about keeping all our doors and options open mm-hmm. uh, and not really just picking one and because it's you know best for the founder. Okay. So another thing that's, uh, you know, I'd love to kind of like hear... Uh, if there are any trends that you've been noticing in the last year since we last talked, uh, you know, in the applications for finance, specifically in this kind of lens that you have on enterprise or B2B mm. SaaS. Yeah. Any particular sectors that people are 
primarily seem to be like gravitating towards? Are sure. there trends that you're seeing? In, yeah, I'd approach? say like the biggest thing we've seen uh, because of our investment in voice flow in the US is this codeless code platform. Right. So everyone's trying to become like the democratization of data and analytics or the workflow automation tools for non-computer scientists, right? So if you're not a developer or an engineer, but you want to be able to build an awesome product, you couldn't have done that a few years ago. But now with tools like VoiceFlow for voice, uh, Figma for design, Webflow for websites, um, a lot of these codeless code tools are taking a, a ton of people's attention. Okay, tell me about Webflow. I've never seen it before, but I've seen it if people's um, websites default to the the Webflow yeah. master domain, yeah, uh, you know, from their subdomain. So the masking, the DNS masking, I guess, isn't working that well on those sites. But is this, this is kind of a Wix uh, type thing? Well, I mean, so Vlad, the CEO, is actually an investor in, in VoiceFlow. Um, okay. So that's how we came across it through them. And oh. um, it's really cool because they've basically taken like really powerful backend tools and allowed people to build powerful um, websites right. without having to know how those actually things work. Yeah. So, you know, if you're not comfortable in WordPress, yeah. you know, it could be really tough for you to build a WordPress site. So it works like Squarespace. Or yeah, but it's more powerful than that. Oh, wow. Way more powerful. So are there, there's interactive yep. widgets and this like Absolutely. JavaScripty stuff yeah, that's exactly. in the background? Yeah, so more than Wix Form and submission and like a, a form comes in and does something else. Yeah, it's 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 not that easy though, like just to pick up and do it. Yeah. I would say like there is skill that needs, just like VoiceFlow, you'd have to have some training to like go and build it, but you can do it within a day or so. Wow. Our, our website's built on Squarespace and we're thinking about going to Webflow because yeah. it really is that powerful. Um, but those kinds of tools is uh, something that people are are really gravitating towards. And then the other thing we're seeing is the, the rise of the prosumer, hmm. the professional consumer. So someone who wants to have a, a side job or um, a startup idea, but they're still working full-time somewhere else, but they want to have tools that allow them to be more efficient with their time. Yep. Um, that prosumer type of platform is something that people are really gravitating towards. So with VoiceFlow, you have two types of users. You have the enterprise customers, obviously in the businesses, B2B side, but then you have like the B2B to C side, the people who are just hobbyists, but they can become professional consumers. So if you are uh, a VUI designer, a, what? Uh, a voice, uh, user interface designer. Okay. It's a, it's a new word that's come up now. It's kind of like uh, if you're a, a designer for um, for um, uh, Adobe Photoshop, yeah. that's your tool of choice. Yeah. If you showed up to your new job and they didn't have Photoshop, what would you do? You couldn't work. Yeah. And so now there's those kinds of tools that people are building on, like a voice flow, that are coming into jobs so and saying we what need is that. voice flow? So voice flow is one of our early investments that uh, basically came out saying we want to help people build voice skills, voice apps, conversational design tools for Alexa to start because oh, that I was see. a smart speaker. Okay. So if you today or let's say a few years ago wanted yeah. to create an Alexa skill. You're humanizing bots through kind voice. Kind of, yeah. But the, 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 the whole thing is it's not just about a smart speaker. Mm -hmm. It's anything that's voice enabled. Sure. So for you to build an app on an iPhone back in you know, 2007, 8, 9, whatever, you need to be a developer, mm -hmm. a mobile developer. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and now you don't have to do that. Yeah. You can drag and drop stuff all the time and yeah. make your own app. And so voice was getting to a point where it was getting a little hard to build things in yep. the Alexa marketplace or Google Assistant. And so Voiceful came along and said, well, let's kind of democratize the building of voice skills on a tool or on a platform 
and they switched to calling it voice flow after building children's stories calling story flow hmm. and now it's one of the hot, uh, highest used uh, conversational design tools in voice wow, that's fascinating yeah so we're seeing that a lot too so the prosumer part i was just getting at is taking uh, tools that can be used by um businesses but also by consumers that allow them to grow into a business use case hmm. yeah that's fascinating so underlying this of course is is you know artificial intelligence uh, yeah, uh, we don't really, we have companies utilizing machine learning yeah. technology um, and I guess artificial intelligence, but really we don't call it that. We, what we say is the, um, the ability to automate uh, workflow mm -hmm. is, is first part of the product that they're solving for. Yeah. And then taking the ability to use data and analytics yeah. to build a tool that makes decisions on its own without human interference. Right. And so taking that uh, process and simplifying it for people to use in every single day's jobs is yeah. important for us to see in a tool if they're going to be course. calling themselves AI machine learning. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have some companies like Pitstop that's... Uh, helping predict car failures before they happen and basically looking at the data that's coming off of a car and analyzing it off of a normal car's performance and saying this car has anomalies in its uh, outputs mm -hmm. off the car's computer mm -hmm. and it's going to have issues with its engine, its battery, its air filters, its brakes, whatever, hmm. before they happen. So before your engine light comes on, yeah. that Sa probably... Saves you service calls. Service calls. Preemptive Yeah, but they focus on enterprise fleets. So they sure. do with cars that are traveling all over the world, all over the country, a lot of miles that need to be fixed often. Interesting. So large fleets. Man. Uh, we hosted an event last night called Dark Futures. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. There were five different speakers, very kind of quick uh, talks, but each focused on... I won't say a disutopia, but <laughs> focused on the maybe the aspects of um, let's call it the the potentially negative aspects, societal impact uh, effects of new technologies mm -hmm. uh, that are massively transformative and being released increasingly uh, with every day that goes by these days. So. Uh, I won't get into, you know, kind of what was presented because we're yeah. going to podcast the um, the audio from that. But are there any almost, uh, are there any dark futures that you predict from what you're seeing in terms of what companies are working on and what massive scale through large enterprise could, um, could affect in marketplaces or use cases of technology that large corporations have massive user bases to um, roll out to? Um, I'm not going to get into the whole sort of, Elon Musk feud on whether AI is going to kill the world and you know machines and robots are going to destroy all of our lives. I, I think there's other people that are way smarter on the subject that can talk about it. Yeah, you know I think there's something I, I heard uh, that was one of Bill Gates' biggest um, downfalls is that he was a technophile, that he thought technology could solve every single problem, and if there's a problem, technology can solve it. And I think we are definitely going that direction with everyone now thinking if there's a problem, technology can solve it. But the problem with that is there's no real transparency or authenticity in how we're solving these things. We just look at the result, mm -hmm. right? Instant gratification to get to that result is what we're accustomed to now. And I think behind the scenes, you know, everyone was hearing the other week with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was saying about how uh, Facebook and Amazon and Instagram and all these things are like controlling our brains. Mm. Well, really they are actually just replicating our brains and being able to make decisions with all the data that they're collecting on us that we may not be able to know what the difference is in the future on what our brains are actually thinking is 
the right decision to make or if it's some other third party Hmm. artificial brain that's making those decisions. And we may lose that ability Hmm. to think for ourselves, to use our own conscious minds to make decisions. And we just default to what does Google think? What do we see on YouTube? What is this? What is And I'm personally quite concerned about the way education today is being taught is the same way it was a hundred years ago. And kids are now not even being forced. They're just gravitating towards their own forms of education um, by going on to Google, YouTube. I mean, there's mm. just so many ways for you to get information and answers today right, yeah. that to learn about the process, the process of learning yeah. has not changed and it needs to change very right. quickly. How to, yeah, yeah. And for our kids uh, and, and those, you know, those pupils that are growing up today in an environment where there's just so much data around them, yeah. they don't have to think for themselves. They can just grasp at it all right, the time. Right. That worries me a lot. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been thinking about a lot of this. You know, my my daughter's nearly two, and um, it's something that we, my wife and I, constantly talk about is this uh, you know question of context. Yeah. And uh, you know, nurture and and nature and how they interplay and how uh, context has so many layers, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels like perhaps uh, these days in a, this you know technocratic society that uh, there's so many layers to this onion and like, mm-hmm. and it is difficult to face as, as parents kind of peel back the layers, they, they get closer to crying, right? Totally. Um, because there's a lot of also fear of, of failure that I think comes with a generational uh, you know, sure. gap that at least I feel like I sit in perhaps with my uh, daughter. But so what I always tell people, other parents, you know, people of our age set um, in their kind of late thirties, early forties mm-hmm. is, uh, when all you consume is kind of mass media provided through, uh, you know, major social tools, mm-hmm. uh, the web and shitty news outlets that are on, you know, crappy TV stations. Yeah. Um, the stories are all the same. The media becomes pretty expectable. And it's true. Without the lens, I see how that can mm-hmm. color someone's sense of reality and limit their creative potential and their decision-making capability. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've already seen in these two years with my daughter is that perhaps it's the context of our household and how we speak to each other and so on. Mm-hmm. I'm already confident in her ability to filter data, just looking at how she interrelates with other kids and other parents. Yeah. So I think their onus is definitely, as it always has since the beginning of time, on parents and families mm-hmm. um, to you know form the kind of basis that allows uh, children to learn uh, and relinquishing a lot of the expectation that people may have had. And again, I'm weird because I grew up in Africa. So like, I feel like when I left Canada to go to Africa and I was like 11, mm-hmm. um, we had to take a lot of responsibility for our consciousness, I felt, because this is a dictatorial regime. You know, yeah. people get beaten as like bloody bodies inside of the road sometimes. Right. And you don't know if it's an accident or someone got, you know, robbed. Uh, so it kind of was a wake up call yeah. uh, at that age. Uh, but I feel like perhaps, I don't know if, 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 um, if here in Canada and if I'd grown up my whole childhood here, if I, my parents would have relied on the quote unquote system yeah. to educate me in a holistic way. And it wouldn't just all be about kind of like, we've given you the basis and then we'll test against what you know. Yeah, totally. I think but that's, yeah. I think that's a problem. Uh, one other thing I think that we try to focus on at Ripple is the human connection side of yeah. investing. I yeah. think a lot of people have moved to algorithmic models for investing, uh, moved to, uh, 
pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember the stage we're investing in. I mean, it's really about it's a human. wild card. Yeah, yeah, it's human connection for yeah. us. I mean, yeah. when we really decide to go all in on an investment, we actually take the founding team out for a long, like out of office kind of walk conversation and just try to get to know them as people to know them because there's so many things that they're going to go through. And I find that we're missing out on that part um, when looking at investments. Yeah. You know, you're looking at the blue sky number or what this unicorn can become. Right. Uh, but really, it's you not have the now; it's the like future picture. Yeah, and so I mean, with. I can't tell you how many times we talk to our founders every day on text message and phone calls, and just you know get to know them as people. And I think that is really important at the early stage. Right. Yeah. When you have a, a company of fifty or five hundred, there's a lot more things at play. Yeah. But at the stage where we're investing in, when you can make changes very quickly, mm-hmm. having the understanding of what that person's like as a human and having that trust and transparency with them is really important. Mm-hmm. And I just hope that as a generation gets older, we don't lose that Yeah. because no one has had to really find those connections with people mm-hmm. um, because things are just available to them everywhere. This is something that we work on uh, a lot here at Startwell is kind of, because we're trying to really create this strong, and I think we have, we've already got the, the beginnings of it, but a really strong peer-to-peer mentorship kind of programming. Mm-hmm. We are we decided kind of about a year ago, a year and a half ago, that, um, you know, linear narratives, top-down kind of education approaches don't necessarily work mm-hmm. um, and are very exhausting to operate. So we're not going to, like, put people in a room... I mean, we're not an incubator accelerator. We offer a lot of value to the companies. Yeah. We're really just, like you said, landlords, right? <laughs> we're landlords of awesome space where yeah. people thrive and are happy <laughs> uh, and all are starting awesome, cool companies. But the thing is, um, yeah, I, I basically, you know, we had programmed some talks. We used to do this whole thing where, like, people would come in and we do, like, breakfasts with founders, right, mm-hmm. in the cafe. And they'd come and we have, like, croissants and everyone would talk yeah. and someone would talk about their experience and it would be great. Um, but then I learned really that watching the audience and how they're receptive to what that guy said, they're kind of, with every founder, there's this, like, need to, to tell stories, yeah. I feel like. And um, it's just about the right format for people to be able to tell them to each other and learn from yeah. each other. So this is kind of what we do now. Yeah. And it's like a really, round table. Yeah, round table. That's Constant great. round tables. And it totally works. And people love it. Um, but that idea, again, of strengthening relationships um, hopefully carries forward. And this is what now we're looking at with some of our, our companies that are growing and even um, leaving our campus. Yeah. We're still in touch with them. Some of our alumni is... The idea of like carrying culture forward Mm -hmm. and keeping it alive in your company, because like you said, I mean, as a company grows beyond 50 people uh, and revenues, let's say, hopefully for everyone listening, if you're uh, fitting in this model, you know, your revenues are strong enough that whether you're uh, subject to a funding cycle for the lifeline of your company or you escape that. Or you never even involve that and you're just revenue positive, you're making money, you've got great relationships with your customers. Mm-hmm. There's still opportunity to get kind of lazy with some of the things. Of course. You know, as soon as things feel like day to day, people stop doing yeah. the work to say, how can we improve on this? Yeah, you raise $20, $30 million. That's runway for 10 years sometimes. You can get pretty comfortable. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and I think that's really interesting is to look at like when people exist in incubators and exist in kind of co-working spaces as organizations, there's not only that kind of like, uh, you know, people aren't just kind of looking inside of their mm-hmm. team at where they can get 
um, you know, help and inspiration and perspective from. Mm-hmm. But they're looking at it, you know, sideways at the office next door and down the hall and well, talking. The to cultures people. vibe against each other. There's competition. Yeah. If we hear a gong going off on one side of the office and the other oh, really? company's trying to sell, oh yeah, it gets intense. They do really? competitions in our office. <laughs> yeah, I'll throw a, a bottle of scotch in the middle to say whoever has the most like sales this week can can have the nice bottle of scotch at the end. Wow. It, it's working. And and not all companies in our, our incubator are like sales focused, right? Some are just pure dev teams focused yep. on some strong product. So we find that the data uh, teams can talk to each other uh, in the same language uh, and help each other a lot with problems, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I, I forgot to mention that uh, we're also really proud of, which goes back to the, the comment about education changing yep. for us, um, is one of my associates uh, started a program called the Ripple X Fellowship Program, which is our student-led program where we actually uh, bring in eight to 10 students a semester. Uh, we, uh, we run a 16 week curriculum program online. Wow. It's fully online that we've built. Uh, we get about 150 to 200 students applying every semester. We choose about eight to 10, as I said, from across Canada and the US. We have kids from U of T, Western, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Cornell, wherever. Um, and we teach them what it's like to be in venture. They could be future founders or fun- funders. Mm-hmm. And we teach them what it's like to source deals, talk with companies, analyze them, and then write deal memos and present them to our team at the end. Hmm. And the best ones that we find that come through this process, we ended up investing in. Hmm. And so for uh, for for 2020, we're going to carve out some capital to invest in these companies. And uh, we're really excited about that because one, the companies that we get through this, uh, and they, they find companies in their ecosystem at their universities, right? So early, early stage, kind of pre-pre-seed companies. Yeah. We get to see those. And then also the... Uh, the Ripple uh, Fellows, that we call them, they're also in our ecosystem that we get to uh, follow their traction as they graduate and start their own companies. Uh, we have a Slack channel of about 100 plus Just students. Open a venture capital us. brokerage. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... You have uh, uh, you can have regional... You're like Remax for VC. <laughs> have offices all over That's the world. That's the true Ripple effect, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating that you guys embarked on this. That's cool. Very yeah, interesting. So we're on our third semester now. Okay. Um, uh, we'll be going into our fourth in January. Yeah. And the, the quality and caliber of students is phenomenal. And the reason why my associate came to me and asked to do this was because he had done like co-op terms just like I had done at school, but those were away from university. Yep. And he had to fully focus on that job at, at hand when you're in that co-op placement. And what he said was, I really want to learn about skills that I can apply in my ecosystem at university while I'm in school. I mean, you know how much free time you have when you're in school. Yeah. So he's like, what if we just allow students to take on tasks and go through a curriculum while they're still in school, but go around their own school ecosystem and say, hey, I work as a Ripple fellow. We're looking into some startups and stuff. Can we talk to each other? And then they also get to come back to us mm-hmm. and present it to us, get feedback, build new skill sets. It's it's actually a quite a good give and take for, for both oh, of yeah, us. Oh, yeah, that's super cool, man. Yeah. Very cool. This is the sort of stuff that actually is interesting to hear, and, and I'm glad that you voiced it on the mic, is the kind of behind the process thinking of running a venture capital firm as a business as well. It's a platform business. You know, it's the same. What we kind of say is we're a startup too. Yeah. You know, our first fund was our seed fund. Right. And our next fund will be our series A kind of stage of, of funding and so on and so forth. So we're we're building a brand. We're building a platform. We're building a team exactly the same way the startups that we invest in are doing it. So it's really important that we think that way too and not just as investors. Yeah. Well, also it keeps it fun. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would be terribly awesome. bored, you know, wearing my blue blazer and my like 
penny loafers. You don't like my penny loafers? <laughs> my blazer I'm wearing He's today? not wearing that right, right now, right. listeners. <laughs> We're wearing jeans. Um, but, you know, like, I, th- that whole, like, yeah, a formulaic kind of investment model is just a little boring. Um, yeah. I mean, we, it works for us. It doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. And a lot of people say to us, like, how can you scale this model when you're so involved with every company? And our answer to them is simple. We're really focused on the pre-seed and seed stage. Yeah. And that's the most risky stage yeah. where there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So we feel like if we put the right foundation and structure in place to get them through a series A, then there's another investor group that's going to come in and they're going to take them from A to B and so on. So right. we don't look at this as a 10-year you know, commitment to the company. We look at it as a 12 to 18-month commitment yeah. where we're really, really deep into this thing and then they kind of graduate through and move up the, the curve. And that's totally fine for us. We think that's manageable. So how many companies have been through? Or so have we've you... got um, uh, not, well, we, we have nine companies in the portfolio announced. We'll okay. be uh, closing our last deal uh, before the end of the year, which will be our 10th company. So we'll have 10 companies in the uh, fund one, um, which is what we set out to do, 10 to 12 companies. And we've got uh, one series A that already closed uh, last month. And we have two more that will close as well shortly. So that will be a pretty good start for us. Um, and then we'll see what uh, 2020 holds. Meaning that those uh, companies you invested in at Seed are raising, pre-Seed, yeah. raising Series A's. A's. Yeah, within a year. 2020, what does it look like for you guys? Yeah, so 2020 is uh, what we think will be a pretty big year for us. Um, we, uh, we've we got a lot of interest from investors who want to you know continue to support us and, and continue to scale. So we'll, we'll definitely be hopefully announcing something in the new year. Um, so stay tuned on that. And I think we, we really enjoy what we're doing. We just want to do more of it with more of an impact. And so what we've done is, like I said, our first fund was kind of like a prototype fund. And right. now it's time to kind of find that product market fit for for ourselves. Nice, man. Thanks. Um, for anyone listening, anything that you're looking for to uh, solicit people reaching out? Yeah, I mean, we're always interested in talking to uh, other VCs, uh, obviously entrepreneurs that are in the pre-seed to seed range of investments, uh, and other kind of operators that want to get involved with our companies and looking to help. We're we're really trying to help take people from, you know, Bay Street, Wall Street, Main Street, whatever you want to call it, and bring them into the startup ecosystem as operators. Because we think there's a ton of great value from people who've built and scaled companies that can be beneficial to our companies. You know, one thing we do is we have a CEO roundtable as well every quarter where we bring in very successful CEOs to have a totally off the record conversation uh, over dinner Hmm. and share experiences with our founders and CEOs of what they went through. And we just think getting more and more of that in the early stage ecosystem is only going to level up companies, especially in Toronto, yeah. faster. Yeah, so definitely. we love that. And uh, we host a lot of uh, corporate events. We bring in like, you know, sponsors to host a, a fireside dinner table, whether it's on AI. Uh, we had the uh, head of uh, Shopify's AI uh, and data science, Solmaz, come and do a talk with a bunch of our portfolio founders and other people in the ecosystem. And we're looking to do a lot more of those. So anyone who wants to reach out uh, or students that are listening that want to apply to our Ripple Fellowship Program, just go to rippleventures.com and sign up uh, uh, for our next cohort. Uh I'm really excited to keep this going through hopefully some of our programming that we're going to have on stage here in our event space during uh, through 2020. We'll try and get you guys on stage and get some of your companies, alumni and anyone else talking about um, that idea of participating in an incubator. Because I know a lot of our uh, listeners, um, you know, maybe founders that sit outside of that incubator accelerator kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, cycle or experience and are curious. Totally. Yep. 
Um, a couple of our companies are alumni of your space too, right? Absolutely. On call and I think Tread too. Okay, it was a pleasure having awesome. you on the mic. Thanks, buddy.